0: I grew up watching movies of Jesus. Every year they'd have a movie about Jesus, and I'd always like them. But as I got older, I liked many of them less than others because of how they portray Jesus. I remember, and I probably shouldn't mention the movies themselves because they might be your favorite movie, and then I'd hurt your feelings, and I don't want to do that. But some of the movies portray Jesus as... So distant, um, you know, he glowed and had a halo and was unreal. Other movies I liked because they portrayed him as a regular guy, though he was the son of God, God in human flesh. There's just some movies that made him realistic, touchable, vulnerable, uh, approachable. One of my favorite movies was by Franco Zeffirelli. And it was Jesus of Nazareth. It's a long film, about eight hours. But we used to meet at Easter time right around this year and the week before. And during Easter, we'd have friends over and just watch that all Saturday. Or half of it one Saturday, half of it the next Saturday. And then have breakfast and lunch and popcorn and have a great time of fellowship watching Jesus of Nazareth. So I'd recommend it to you. I like it. Some of the parts are a little flaky, but for the most part, it's just really well done. And what Luke does is take Jesus and portray him very realistic, in a very very realistic sense. The theme is the Son of Man. Now we read in verse 15 of chapter 3 that there was an expectation among the Jews of the Messiah, a heightened expectation. So much so that when John the Baptist came on the scene and was out there at the Jordan River preaching, baptizing, calling people to repentance, people thought, that is the Messiah. The writings of Josephus shed some interesting light on the times during which Jesus and John the Baptist lived. Now, Josephus was Jewish, yet he was hired by the Roman government to give a full-orbed History of the Jewish Nation, and he wrote several volumes, and it's interesting, fascinating reading. He would have no reason, being Jewish and hired by the Romans, to sympathize with the Christians, and yet there are a couple of times where he mentions the fact that there was a man named Jesus who went about doing good, performing miracles, and Josephus said this was the Messiah. He said that during this time there was a national sense, an exacerbated heightened sense of expectancy among the Jews that because the oppression is so bad, because of the Roman government, that the Messiah must surely be around the corner, very much like the expectation in Israel today. As you see some of the banners at the Western Wall and around Israel, that the Messiah is soon to come. And that, we, that, that people ought to wake up for the Messiah's coming is very near. Those signs are all over Israel today. A heightened sense of expectancy. But the kind of Messiah that they expected back then was very different from the real, approachable, son-of-man type that Jesus was. And I think that threw people for a loop. They expected a political ruler to come in and just clean the clocks of the Roman government. With strong force, overturn the enemies, the Roman government, set Israel up as the ruling nation, usher in the kingdom age, which Israel would be preeminent with the Messiah. So the boldness of John caused them to wonder, is this the Messiah? And of course, As we read last week, and as we see here, John says that he's not the Messiah at all, but he points to Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week how much I love John the Baptist for a number of reasons. Because, first of all, he just said things as they were. He wasn't um, Mr. Congeniality, perhaps. Uh, He didn't read any books on how to win friends and influence people. But he was a straight shooter. You always knew where he stood. He was not a man filled with flattery. Yet he never did it for himself. He wasn't just angry with people. He was a prophet, a prophetic voice, telling people, get right. Prepare the way of the Lord. And he was the ultimate servant. He would always give glory to God and always point the way to Jesus Christ. And he said, no, I'm simply foretelling one who is to come. I am not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to step down and tie his sandals. I look at John the Baptist sort of as a good long-distance operator. If you want to make a long-distance person-to-person call, you'll get the operator, and she's the go-between. She's the servant. If you're in a foreign country, I want to call the states. Here's the number. Here's the uh, district, the county, the state, so forth. The long-distance operator will connect you, and then once she or he has connected you with your party, the operator's voice fades away. John the Baptist is connecting Israel with Jesus Christ. And then he says, I must decrease, he must increase. He connects people, then he backs off. He is like the ultimate servant pointing people toward Jesus Christ. Now we read quickly over a few verses last week when John the Baptist was out there at the Jordan in verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was open. The question has been asked, why did Jesus Christ get baptized? Especially since people who were being baptized were called to repentance and confessed their sins. What sins did Jesus have to confess? None. He was the perfect son of God. Yet he was baptized. Hebrews chapter 4 gives us the answer to that problem. It talks about Jesus as being our great representative, our great high priest. It says, Seeing then that we have this great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus Christ came and was touched with all the things we are touched with. God, wrapped in human flesh, able to go through times of hunger, times of pain, times of distress, times of loneliness, able to identify and relate with us. He didn't need to be baptized. He came to be baptized to identify as the Son of Man with men themselves. It's been said that the Son of God became a man so that men can become sons of God. He related with us. So now, whenever you feel lonely, whenever you feel pain, whenever you're going through hardship, your friends have forsaken you, you have somebody in heaven who can relate with you. Had God not become a man, and you in your prayer time were to cry out, Oh God, so and so has forsaken me. My husband or my wife walked out on me. I'm rejected by people. Or I'm going through this pain. This is horrible. My body is aching. God, because he is God and heaven far removed from humanity, had he not become a man, could only have said, Well, I'm sorry, but I can't relate to you. I don't exactly know what you mean. Becoming a man, touching the feelings of our infirmities, when you cry out to God in any capacity, he can relate to you. He knows what it's like to have his friends leave him. He knows what it's like to have nails driven through his hands. He knows what it's like to be utterly alone. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cries from the cross. He's a great high priest able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So that means you can come boldly before his throne at any time. Jesus is God accessible. And that's one of the reasons, I believe, that the genealogies are included here, which we're just about to go over, but probably not in great detail, just to kind of sum up a few points. But he came to sympathize with us. It says in verse 23, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Interesting, that was the year that the high priests were allowed to begin their service. Never before, but at the age of 30. The son of Joseph, the son of Heli, other translations would put it, the son-in-law of Heli, because we know genealogically that Heli was uh, in the lineage of Mary and not Joseph. The son of... Matt Tot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jonah, the son of Joseph, and a lot of other names that I have simply perused, and I will not repeat, because I'll mispronounce them, and uh, you can have fun on your own. Now if you're ever looking for uh, something to name uh, your child, you've got a whole list of biblical names to choose from. I dare you. Now, there's two genealogies in the Bible, and this is where I want to just thoroughly cover this, though I've covered it before, and, uh, and, and let this sink in. There's two genealogies, one in Matthew and one in Luke. Now, that shouldn't throw you. Everybody's allowed to have two genealogies. You've got a mom and a dad. And indeed, one is the genealogy of Jesus Christ through the lineage of Mary, That's his physical descent. And then the other is through the lineage of uh, of Joseph. That's his foster father, also a descendant of King David. Luke covers that. And, uh, oh excuse me, Matthew covers Joseph and uh, Luke covers Mary here. Matthew begins with Abraham and moves forward to Jesus Christ. Luke begins with Jesus and goes backward to Adam. Why Adam? Because he's the first man. And Luke is showing Jesus as the Son of Man. Both Luke and Matthew cover Mary and Joseph's genealogy. Both were descendants of King David and both trace the lineage of Jesus back to King David, though through two entirely different lines. Mary's genealogy is traced all the way back to David, Jesus, Mary, all the way back to David, through Nathan, one of the sons of David. Luke's genealogy here of Joseph, the foster father of... No, wait a minute. Erase that. Luke covers Mary, Matthew covers Joseph. Matthew, when he goes and takes the genealogy of Jesus back to David... He does it through also uh, the royal line, but through King Solomon, okay? I mentioned last week that God gets himself sort of into a predicament that he has to get out of. Let me explain what I meant. And let me begin by a premise, all right? Let's start this way. Let's start from Genesis. Let's suppose that God's plan for redemption, the redemption of humanity depends upon a nation and the perpetuity of that nation, the continuation of that that nation. God's plan for redemption depends on the existence of a nation. If that were true, and indeed it is, the nation of Israel, if you could destroy that nation, if you could wipe out the nation that is promised, that will bring in the Messiah, you will thwart God's plan. That's a pretty heavy premise. If you could destroy this group of people, God's plan for humanity is completely thwarted. That's a heavy idea. I mean, if you destroyed all the UCLA graduates or all the UNM graduates or all the graduates from West Point, no offense if any of you graduated from those schools, I'm just simply drawing them out, but if you could destroy all of the graduates of those schools, you probably wouldn't thwart the entire plan of God for the human race significantly. But if you could destroy the Jewish nation through which the Messiah is to come, you could thwart the plan of God. Now let's take the premise and move into a promise. It's back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. They're coming. (laughs) After the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. God has a message for Adam, God has a message for Eve, and God has a message for the serpent, Satan. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he, the seed of the woman, will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Now, that's a glorious promise for us. It speaks that one day God is going to send The seed of the woman, the Messiah, to destroy, to crush Satan's head. It's a great promise for us. It's a great promise for all of humanity, all of mankind. It's not a great promise if you're the serpent. From that moment on, the attack of Satan, the movement of Satan through Israel and through world history is to get at that seed, the seed of the woman, the Messiah. Now, you can understand why. It would mean the demise of Satan's kingdom. If I told you, and I won't, after the Bible study is out, I'm going to crush your head. I would never tell you that. But if I were to give you that promise, and you thought that I could fulfill or make good on that promise, you'd do everything you could to get out of it, or to counterattack. And indeed, we see that happening throughout the Scripture. Once you understand this, The Bible takes on a whole different complexion. It's what Donald Gray Barnhouse called the invisible war. The first attempt to destroy the seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 comes very not far after that promise when Cain, I believe incited by Satan, goes to kill his brother Abel. Because there's only a few people on the face of the earth, Adam and Eve and a couple kids. That doesn't work because God's seed, promised seed, comes through another son, Seth. And as time goes on, attack number two, at least, maybe it's been attack number three, but Satan incites the corruption of the entire human race, which became corrupt before God, and God says, I'm going to judge the earth. And there's an interesting little phrase that says, The sons of God came into the daughters of men. And they were born unto them giants. And wickedness filled the earth. And God said, "It is repented me that I made man. I will destroy them off the face of the earth. Well, you can't destroy all of them, God. You promised that through this woman, the seed would come. You destroy everyone. You're going to have a problem fulfilling that promise. You've got to save a few. And so he does. He saves eight, Noah and his family. Then, as time goes on, it is promised that of the twelve sons of Jacob. One tribe will be the royal tribe. It's the tribe of Judah. The Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah, it is predicted in Genesis 49. And that's interesting because every bit of information that leaks out, you see some weird things happening with that group of people. There's an instance in the book of uh, Chronicles, I believe, it's 2 Chronicles 21, where the Ethiopians, the Arabians, and the Philistines attack the royal line of Judah and take them away and destroy them except for one. Except for one. Jehoahaz, I believe his name is. Then it is predicted that through King David, who is of that lineage, through King David the Messiah will come. Now, as the news leaks out, again, there's another counterattack from the enemy. There's another odd scripture. It's in um, the book of 2 Kings this time, where there's this wild woman named Athaliah. It says, she kills all of the royal sons of Judah except one. This time it's Joash. You see this kind of stuff happening all the way throughout the scripture, it's sort of like this. Let's say we got a news bulletin that the United States is about to be attacked tonight. Where do you put your protection? Where do you put your troops? Uh, who knows? Until more information leaks out. Now Let's, see, let's say we queue uh, in and we find some information that says uh, we're going to be attacked on the coast of California. You know, everything starts in California and moves east anyway, so we'll attack California. Okay, so we start figuring out counterattacks, preventative measures in California, but we still don't know exactly where and then we find out it's going to be northern California later we find out they're going to start in Santa Cruz and move south. Okay, once we get the information, we can A, protect B, we can counterattack, especially if we know where the enemy is located off the coast. As God through history reveals who the seed is going to be, you have a counterattack in the realm of darkness to get at that royal seed. Oh, by the way, Pharaoh is incited by the devil to kill, kill all of the male children in Egypt. Why? It's an attempt to exterminate the race of the Jews, that's why. And that happens all the way through up till Jesus is born. And Herod gets that wild inkling, let's kill all the babies born in Bethlehem. Two years old and younger. It's a radical statement. It's a radical measure. Again, it's an attack to destroy the royal, holy seed of God. Attempt to exterminate the seed, the Messiah. Now this kind of stuff goes on throughout the scriptures until we get to a major league problem. The royal line of David is cursed. And it is a big problem. And uh, let's turn now to Jeremiah chapter 22. We'll read a couple verses then. Uh, Believe me, we'll go back. We'll make it tonight. We come to King Jeconiah. You know, the kings of Israel, as you know, and Judah get pretty bad, get really wretched. Finally God says, I've had enough. Verse 28, this man Kaniah, also known as Jeconiah, a despised broken idol, is he a vessel in which there is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling in Judah anymore. You know what a radical curse that is? The lineage of Jeconiah, which is part of the royal line of King David, The dynasty of David, all the way down, comes to Jeconiah. Now Jeconiah is cursed. All of his descendants will not occupy a place in the royal lineage. It says, write him down as childless. None of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling in Judah anymore. Now that's a problem because Jesus Christ has to fulfill the promise to David in the lineage of King David. That's why there's two genealogies. That's one of the reasons there's two genealogies. And that's the reason Jesus was virgin born. God got around his own curse. Joseph, the foster father, the supposed father, not the literal father, the foster father of Jesus, who had legal custody of Jesus, could trace his lineage all the way back to King David through the royal line, Jeconiah, Solomon, David. Mary could trace her lineage all the way back to King David, but through Nathan, not Solomon, through Nathan, skipping the cursed line of Jeconiah. So he has a dynastic rule to the throne and right... Because Joseph is his foster father. But that lineage is cursed. So what? Jesus was born of a virgin. It was the Holy Spirit that was conceived, conceived the seed in her womb. She's, he still has the physical descent back to David, but this time not through the royal lineage, but around that curse. So God curses Jeconiah for a sin, gets around his own curse by having his son born of a virgin. The dynastic rite goes through Joseph, the physical descent through Mary. He can fulfill the promise that David's son would sit upon the throne, yet his bloodline is not cursed because he's born of a virgin. So you have two genealogies, and Matthew and Luke point that out. Jesus, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's so wonderful about the New Testament and the Old Testament. You put them back to back. You place them and you weave them together and you say, man, there's this huge invisible war, this struggle going on in the heavens. What's going to happen? I am sure that when God said to Jeconiah, your descendants are cursed, they'll never sit on the throne of David. There was a victory party in hell. Yes! We have thwarted the purpose of God. We've had this royal lineage cursed. But he didn't read the fine print. The seed usually comes through the man, yet there's that odd contradiction, the seed of the woman. Prediction of the virgin birth. It's awesome. So God says, yeah, I'll curse a man, but I'll get around it. The son of Enos, verse 38, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now we get to the temptation of Jesus Christ we saw back in verse 21 and 22 that the heavens were open. And anytime time the heavens are open, hell is open. And now we get to Satan and his personal attack here against Jesus Christ. I don't know where you stand in your belief on the devil, but the Bible teaches the literal devil. One of the angels created by God, second in command only to God himself, light bearer, son of the morning, who was puffed up with pride and caused a third of the angels to fall with him. Before I was a Christian, though I thought I was a Christian during that time, but before I was a Christian I dabbled in lots of junk and one of them was astral projection, spirit writing, and all sorts of things where I communicate with the dead and ancestors and basically demons. I came to the realization after a while that I was dealing with forces of darkness And not light. And it dawned on me, I thought, you know, if there's this much power on the wrong side, I'd be an idiot to stay on this side. There's got to be a whole lot of power on the right side. And we see that power displayed here in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke. I think, however, we make two mistakes concerning the devil. Christians either minimize him altogether or maximize him too much. There's some who say, oh, I don't believe in a literal devil. Then you're duped. If you believe that, there's no enemy more dangerous than one you can't see or you disbelieve in. The other extreme, and I think a lot of Christians fall prey to this, is they give him too much credit. They see Satan as the opposite of God. He'd love you to believe he's the opposite of God. He's not. He was created by God, and God will destroy him ultimately. If you want an exact opposite of Satan, you have to look to Michael or Gabriel, an archangel of God. And we see in Revelation chapter 12, war in heaven breaks out between Satan, his minions, and Michael. And one day God will ultimately destroy Satan. I can't wait for that. But until that time, we have a battle on our hands. And the more you do business with God, the more you'll do business with the devil. Nothing provokes the devil as your proximity to God. And you can figure out why. The moment you decide to love God, serve God, pull out all the stops, and serve Him wholeheartedly, what do you expect, hell, to take it sitting down, give you an applause or something? Yay, great, we agree. Listen, they're going to do everything they can to stop you, to find your weaknesses, to tempt you, to drag you down. Read the writings of Martin Luther. He spoke about the devil as being very real. He said the devil would appear to him. There's that famous stain over in Germany, somewhere where the ink stains of Luther's inkwell are still on the wall, where he threw it at the devil one night during temptation. Charles Finney, the great lawyer turned revivalist in upper New York State, was asked, Mr. Finney, you don't really believe in a literal devil, do you? He said, You try doing battle with him and you'll see if he's real or not, if he's literal or not. Satan, the devil, is mentioned 72 times in the New Testament, not as a figment. Of your imagination, not as the personification of evil, not as a metaphor of all that is bad, but as something literal. Metaphors don't inhabit swine. Personifications of evil or word pictures don't personally attack Jesus Christ. He's seen as very real and Jesus dealt with him as very real. Now, some people have noticed a discrepancy, seemingly, from the Old and the New Testament. They say, look, The devil's mentioned about three, four times in the Old Testament, but he's mentioned 72 times in the New Testament. Why? Well, again, think back to the Invisible War. The seed of the woman has been born. He's on the earth. The kingdom of God is among them. It only stands to reason that demonic activity would be on the rise in the presence of the Son of God upon the earth. And so we see this personal attack against Jesus Christ. Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, And was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now notice, first of all, that the temptation comes after Jesus' baptism. He's baptized, immediately he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and the devil comes to him. You know, that's very much a pattern with the devil. As soon as God gives you a blessing, Satan comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's a thief. He wants to rip off your blessing. As soon as the children of Israel get deliverance after Passover, what happens? Pharaoh gets so ticked off, he says, I'm going to destroy him," And he comes on their heels to breed fear into their hearts. As soon as King Hezekiah decides to celebrate the Passover after finding the law and bringing revival on the land, as soon as he does that, Sennacherib the Assyrian comes and surrounds Jerusalem and says, we're going to destroy you, bringing fear into the lives of the people. As soon as Peter, James, and John see the transfiguration of Jesus on that mountain, I mean, it must have been so awesome. They thought, man, we can, we can die and go to heaven right now. We've seen it all. What a blessing. Moses and Elijah and Jesus glorified in that, in that wonderful state, that prophetic state. They come down off the mountain. What do they find? A demon-possessed boy. And the father says, we tried to get your disciples to take care of him, but they couldn't do it. And their faith is challenged. Satan looks for the blessings that you have and tries to destroy and to rip off what God has given. It's almost a given. You might walk away from a church service so blessed. God may have spoken to you. The time of worship was so enriching. As soon as you get out the door, it's like he's out there kind of like, okay, church is almost out. They'll be in their car soon. They'll be on the freeway soon, and I'll just get that person to pull out in front of them and And see what kind of a joy they have. Or some circumstance, something will happen to steal what God has given. After the baptism of Jesus Christ comes this attack. It's not Murphy's law. That's Lucifer's law. He's out to get you. In those days, verse 2, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Second thing to notice about this, Satan comes at the weakest point. And he hasn't been eating anything for 40 days. Now, I've never gone without food long. <laughs> Listen, I've tried to fast. And it's, for me, it's, it's very difficult. I have to literally leave any place where there's food because I'm, my flesh is just strong. If there's a burger joint, it's like, I, I have to go there. I just can't stop. <laughs> so if I'm going to fast, you've got to get me away out in the desert, out in the mountains with a backpack and a jug of water. But they say... That after a week of fasting, you lose your hunger. I would know. I haven't made it that long. (laughs) But they say after a week, that strong incentive to have hunger satisfied sort of passes. And you can make it for a long time as your body consumes stored energy and fat, feeds on itself. Then, after a period of time, about a month, 40 days here, when the hunger comes back the second time, it is an indication that your body is starving to death. And if you don't get food soon, you will die. This is the weakest point. You are weak physically. You are thus weakened emotionally as well. And weakened spiritually. So Satan comes at the weakest point, And he attacks you. And guess what? The devil has studied you. He's made you an object of research and he knows your weaknesses. And he'll find those weaknesses. And he'll get you after a time of blessing, when you least expect it perhaps, when your shields are down or sometimes when you're at your very weakest. I find that the devil often attacks in sort of a three-pronged approach. You might be weak in physically, And it could be a a physiological ailment. I think a lot of people say, it's the work of the devil. You could have hypoglycemia, for instance, that lends itself to depression. You're weakened physically. You're weakened emotionally. And at that state, the doubts will come stronger than ever before. He'll seek to get you physically, emotionally, and spiritually and drag you down. Like the talons of a bird of prey. Just get those three spikes in you and drag you down at your weakest moment when you're vulnerable. Now in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, it should be translated since. The tense in the Greek indicates the devil isn't saying, well, suppose you are. He knew that he was. And it's since you are the Son of God, and the whole attack basically is predicated on the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now I believe what's happening in that temptation is he is questioning the love of God. Getting the Son of God to question the love of God, the love of the Father for him. Hey, since you're the Son of God, look at you're out here in the desert, you're alone. Your Father hasn't provided for you. I mean, he provided for Elijah, I mean, he sent birds to come and give food. You're out here, so use your power to take these stones and make them bread. Now, some of those stones look like loaves of bread. They're rounded like small little loaves of bread. And I bet that if you haven't had food for forty days and you're starting to get hungry again, you start looking at loaves of bread in rocks. You know, those rocks look pretty good. <laughs> little ketchup, a little mustard. Why not? But he's questioning the love of God. Since you're the Son of God, look at you're out here alone. God hasn't provided for you. It's the same kind of tactic he used against Adam and Eve in the garden, remember? How come you don't eat this? Eat. No. God said we can't eat. Half God said. God knows that if you eat, you'll be wise as he is. Basically saying, how could a God of love keep these things from you? If God really loved you, he wouldn't let you be in this condition. So the devil comes at your weakest moment, gets you to question the love of God and the provision of God. God hasn't met your need. How can you trust God? You say you're a Christian. Look, God didn't take care of you. God's taking care of them. He's not taking care of you. Quit trusting God. Do it on your own. Temptation to lose heart because your needs aren't met. Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is a supernatural kind of a view, not a physical view. You can't see much from that area down by the Dead Sea in the wilderness of Judea, but he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And listen to this bold statement. The devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. Who delivered it to him? Adam. Adam, through the fall, Satan becomes a usurper. And the world will not be totally redeemed back to God until we get to Revelation chapter 5 when that scroll is unloosed, the title deed to the earth, and the earth is bought back to God. And the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. This is a very accurate statement. Jesus doesn't say, I beg to differ with you. We have a basic theological difference here. Because he knew that This was right. It had been delivered to him. He's called the prince of this world. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. That's a very bold statement. And basically he's offering Jesus a shortcut. Why did Jesus come? To redeem the world back by the blood of the cross. Hey, don't go the way of the cross. I'll give it to you. Just indulge me. I'd like to see you bow down and, and worship me. That's something Satan always wanted, wasn't it? He said, I will be like the Most High. He wanted worship. Oh, the ultimate, ultimate experience. If the Son of God would bow and worship him just for a moment, he said, I'll cut you a little bit of deal here, Jesus. You've come to buy back the world. Why go the painful way? Why go the way of the cross? Why go God's way? You can shortcut it. You can have fulfillment now. Does Satan ever attempt you that way? Does he ever say, why go God's way? Why wait for God's best? Why wait for that Christian husband? Why wait for that Christian wife? Why trust God in your finances? Have immediate gratification now. Okay. (laughs) Whatever, devil. Amen. Jesus answered and said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I have an article. I've kept it. It's from the uh, Los Angeles Times. And uh, it's got a guy on the front, and he's got a symbol of the devil on his vest, and he's got spikes on, and he's a rad-looking teenage dude. And the name of the article is, Satan is a cool dude. And this guy is quoted by saying, You know, I would rather serve the devil than serve God because the devil's a cool dude. He lets me have whatever I want. He doesn't impose any rules, any regulations. He lets me do whatever I want and have fun. So I would rather worship the devil, he said, than worship God. That is the pinnacle of idiocy. That's like a captain of a sinking ship. As the ship's about to Go down in five or ten minutes. The captain says, fellow crew members, if you're in first class, we welcome you aboard. But if you're in second, third, fourth, whatever class, you can have free first-class rooms. You can have all the food you can eat. You can play football, soccer, and basketball in the ballroom, in the dining room. You can do whatever you want. The ship is yours. If you want to control the ship, come up and take the wheel, do whatever you want. And there'll be a few people on board who go, wow, what a cool captain, man. No rules. I like this dude. He's happy. He's awesome. Total existentialism. Yeah, people rule. In five minutes, they'll be dead. Not very brilliant. So the way of Satan, shortcut the way of God. I'll give you fulfillment. Don't suffer. Don't go the way of the cross. He says, get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple is the pinnacle corner of the southeast corner of the Temple Mount, some 450 feet above the Kidron Valley. It's imposing. You can look from the Kidron up today and see the, just the remains of the pinnacle, a platform where the priests would blow the trumpet. And he took him to the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, If you are, or since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. That might not make much sense, but if you study Jewish lore, you know that the rabbis before this time predicted, when the Messiah comes, he shall stand at the highest point of the temple, proclaiming that he's the Messiah. So playing off on that story, that prediction of the rabbis, he says, throw yourself down. And then he quotes the scripture. Did you know that the devil's a theologian? Oh, yes he is. He knows the Bible. Listen, he was trained in the best theological school anywhere, the very throne of God, before he fell. For it is written, you know, he figures, okay, tit for tat, you're quoting me scriptures, let me quote you one. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. Now he left a part out. If you look it up in the original text in the Old Testament, to keep you in all his ways. Makes a big difference. This is not the way or the will of God. But he conveniently leaves out the most important qualifying part of the scripture and just says, To keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You know, a lot of people these days quote scriptures. Have you noticed that? Well, the Bible says this in the Bible. A lot of people want to use the Bible to further their cause. But they'll misquote it. They're just using God to get their little agenda pushed. Well, the Bible says this. Let's look at it in context. You know, it could mean a whole different thing in context, and it does indeed. But he quotes the scripture, and Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. This temptation is a temptation. He's basically tempting Jesus in the area of trust of his father. Okay, listen. You've come, you say that you're the Messiah, you say that you're the Son of God, you say that you trust your Father. If you really trust your Father, let's see if he'll keep his word. When you throw yourself down, let's see if he'll send his angels to rescue you. just, I just, see if, if your Father will fulfill this scripture that I just misquoted to you. Throw yourself down. Let's see how much you trust him. And Jesus simply says, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And that's very true. You should never tempt God by placing yourself deliberately in danger. Like, well, I'm going to walk out in front of this truck here and just see if God will protect me. God might be saying, let's come to heaven right now. (laughs) Don't be foolish. There's people down in the uh, south who handle rattlesnakes to this day, saying that if you really trust God, you really believe God, you really have enough faith, you pass this venomous snake around, and uh, if it bites you, if you have enough faith, of course, you're holy, you won't die, and uh, uh, if you don't have enough faith, of course, we'll bury you. They still do this in the South, because Jesus said, you'll pick up poisonous snakes and they won't harm you. It's stupid to deliberately place yourself in jeopardy, thus tempting God. There's only one time God ever said to test him, and that was in tithes and offerings, in giving the only time God said, test me. And see as you give if I don't open up the floodgates of heaven and bless you. It's the only singular time where you are told to test. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Mark that. It's not the end. It's not over with yet. Temptation is seasonal. The devil is like a woodpecker woodpecker will go up to a tree and he'll go, and he'll feel it out. And if it's too hard, he'll move over a little bit, and he'll keep tapping, and he'll keep moving over and keep tapping until he finds soft wood. When he finds soft wood, he'll burrow that beak in hard and fast. And so the devil will tempt you a little bit here. No, it's unsuccessful. And you go, I'm pretty good. He'll be back, don't worry. He does not quit easily. He'll come back at an opportune time, and he comes back in the Garden of Gethsemane to return to Jesus Christ. (laughs) <laughs> Will we ever reach a stage where the battle is over on this Earth? I wish I could say yes, then it be, wouldn't it be great if I'd say, "I have discovered the place, Christians. Where you get, where you're never tempted? Well, I find that I'm very easily tempted still to this day. I just have to walk circumspectly, find out my Achilles' heels, where they are, my weaknesses, that soft wood. Know how close to get, where to stay away from. Stick close to the Lord because you never reach a plateau where you're not tempted or vulnerable. But you can get into a pattern of dealing with the devil to where, even though the temptations come and may even come harder than at first, you can deal successfully with the devil. A few keys. Number one, reside close to God. Jesus, led by the Spirit, was tempted. The Bible says that God won't allow you to be tempted above what you are able. Maintain intimacy and closeness with the Lord Jesus Christ. Reside close to God, not far away. It's foolish for you to say, you know, life is getting tough. I'm going to break fellowship. I'm going to stop reading my Bible. Oh, man you're getting yourself into a mess. Secondly, resist the devil. It says that in the book of James. Reside near God. Secondly, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. When he comes to attack you, resist, which means stand immovable. Now that doesn't mean that you resist temptation, though we shouldn't do it. But what does it say about temptation? We should flee temptation. How do you resist the devil? By fleeing temptation. That is, when you see temptation coming, don't stand around and go, I can fight it. I just won't do it. I'll just stare at it all day, but I won't do it. I can resist. Now, get out of there. If you're tempted with donuts, don't have your quiet time in a winchels. If you've had alcoholism as a background, don't say, I'm going to go witness in the bar tonight. If you're weak, stay away from it. You know your weak spots. Flee temptation. You say, "What's being a coward. Tell that to Joseph. I like his cowardice, if you call that coward. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him day by day and finally she grabbed him and said, come to bed with me, nobody's home. It says that he fled out of the house naked. She had still his garment grabbed right off his body. He didn't care. He just, I'll streak for God. I'm getting out of here. (laughs) I'm not going to stay in this place of vulnerability and temptation. That's how you resist the devil. You flee that area of weakness and vulnerability. Resist and flee temptation. And don't leave a forward. A lot of people flee and then they leave a forwarding address. Listen, you can call me later on over here, devil. And then the third thing that I would commend to you in this fight against darkness is do what Jesus did, recall the Scriptures. Recall the Scriptures. Every time he said, it is written, he didn't say, well, you know, I figure. He just said, it is written. The more you know the Bible, the more you will be able to resist the devil. The sword of the Spirit, the Bible says, which is the Word of God. You know what that means? The word in Greek is "makari." It's a short little dagger. It was used for close combat, where you would have the enemy right in front of you with your little shield and you would be making strategic blows. Knowing particular scriptures, scripture memory, particular promises in difficult times where you can pull it out and use it is very, very helpful and will help you win that battle against the devil. All right, we move on. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went around through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so he came to Nazareth, where he was brought up, and as his custom was, note that, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Listen, Jesus attended public worship. Somebody, someone came to me the other time and says, I'm going to be sharing with my brother or my cousin, I forget which. And He says he's a Christian, but he says he doesn't attend church. I don't have to attend church. I'm into Christ, not Christians. I said, well, he's not following his master very well, then is he? Now, Jesus could have had a few excuses at this point. He could have said, why should I go to the synagogue? After all, Judaism is corrupt. There's a bunch of hypocrites in the synagogue. And he'd have been right. Or he could have said, I don't need to go to the synagogue. I'm the son of God. I wrote the book. (laughs) Others might need it, but I don't need it. But he still went. And if you're a Christian, you need other Christians around you. It's like coals in a barbecue. You isolate one coal out of that barbecue when it's burning, and the rest of the coals will burn. That other coal will die out. You need the heat of other believers around you to encourage you. You can't make it on your own. It says that we had to be committed to fellowship. Acts chapter 2. They committed themselves to fellowship. And all the more as you see the day approaching, Hebrews tells us. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. And as we see that day's getting darker and darker and more evil, and we had to be more committed to it. Oh, but there's a cool show on tonight. Oh, but why should I? I don't need it. There's too many, how many times have you heard, there's too many hypocrites in the church. When somebody says, "Well, I don't go to a church, there's too many hypocrites, they say, well, there's room for one more. <laughs> church is not perfect. And God will forgive sin and God will forgive hypocrisy. You come as you are, but listen, I've, so every, any, anybody who says there's too many hypocrites, what, what, are you perfect or something? There's room for one more. So it was Jesus' custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read, and he was handed the book, literally the scroll, they didn't have bound books like this, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The synagogue service would begin with a prayer asking God to bless them as the covenant people of Israel. Then they would utter the Shema Israel Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Then the scripture, the law, would be read. It was read, the scriptures were in Hebrew, but in Israel, as the person would read the Hebrew, he would paraphrase it in Aramaic, so that the people being uh, Aramaic speaking in the land of Israel from the captivity would be able to understand. Jesus finds Isaiah 61, which all of the rabbis understood as a clearly messianic passage. And probably the, I can kind of picture them, they're stroking their beards, and they're going, Amen. And they understand, this is Jesus, he grew up here, and then they're listening to him, that's right. And uh, they're all nodding, saying Amen to it, till he closes the book and he said, What I just read has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. What was he claiming? I'm the Messiah. It's done. It's fulfilled. Now, in Isaiah 61, there is a phrase that he left out. He did it on purpose. He closed the book at that point. Verse 19, which is part of Isaiah 61, would read, To preach the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. That wasn't fulfilled yet. He closed the book at the right place. He couldn't say, and the day of vengeance of our God, it's fulfilled. Because that won't be fulfilled till the tribulation period. That's the day of vengeance of our God. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The year, it is supposed, was 29 A.D. By our reckoning. If you were to count back to the year 1393 B.C., It was the first on record year of Jubilee. And if that is the first recorded year of Jubilee, remember the Jubilee year from Leviticus 25? We've gone through that on Sunday nights. The Jubilee year was this. It was the year where the captives are set free. If you were a slave, you'd be free. If you had somebody else's property, the property would be released from you and go back to the original owner. It was a year of rest. It was a year of celebration. It happened every 50 years. You had six years... Sowing, reaping, seventh year, you'd let the ground lay fallow. You did that seven times. After the 49th year, on the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. If 1393 B.C. is correct, is the first known historical Jubilee year, that means the year 29 A.D., when Jesus said this, was also the Jubilee year. How fitting for him to read this scripture. The year when the captives are set free, but in a spiritual sense also. He had come, their Messiah to be the one to set the captives free. And the rabbis understood what he was saying. To preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said... Is this not Joseph's son? Now, this was not a compliment. It wasn't just a question of identification. Other Gospels put it this way. Isn't this the carpenter's son? A carpenter today is a very valid and uh, upstanding profession. In Jesus' time, it was not. Now, I know you, you get a picture of Jesus there in the carpenter shop, and he's building beams for homes, and he's out there, you know, he's got his, maybe his belt and his hammer. I don't know how you picture it, but carpenters didn't build homes in those days. None of the homes in Israel were built out of wood. They were all built out of mud or out of brick. And they didn't use wood for any plates. They used pottery. So carpenters made things like little chairs or stools, Doors and wooden spoons. It was not seen as an important profession. It was a part time job. A carpenter almost always had another job going. So to say, isn't that the carpenter's boy? It's like, isn't that the day laborer's boy? It was not a notable profession. It's sort of the fulfillment of Isaiah. He was despised and rejected among men. Who is this young whippersnapper, this carpenter's son, the son of Joseph, saying the scriptures fulfilled? In our hearing, it was sort of a cut. And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also in your country. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Listen to these two examples. And by the way, the gospel of Mark says, and they were offended at him. If you want to know why, this is why. But I tell you, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You know what he's saying? He's saying of all of the Jewish widows at the time of Elijah the prophet, he didn't go to any of them. He went to a Gentile, showing that God's blessing and favor and grace is also to Gentiles, not just to Jewish people. You see, they were so sectarian. They were so proud. Well, we're the chosen people. They were so exclusive. And he's putting an arrow in their exclusivism. What he's saying is that Jews must come the same means of grace as Gentiles. Second example. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha. That's the successor of Elijah. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So you go back to that time of Israel. Find out how many people were healed of leprosy. You'll find one, a Gentile, who humbled himself enough to dip seven times in the Jordan River. Now here's the reaction. All those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill, which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. And passing through the midst of them, he went his way." If you ever go with us to Israel, we'll take you to the brow of that cliff. You can look down and see how precarious and steep it is overlooking the valley of Ezralon. Jesus goes back to his hometown. They didn't accept him. Some of you may have tried to witness to your family, mom, dad, brothers and sisters, and what was their response? They said, look, we're your parents, right? We're your brothers. We know you better than other people. Don't try to pull a fast one on us. There's nothing special about you. You are more righteous than we are. Listen, I've been in church all my life. Prophet is not without honor except in his own country. But now let's close with those beautiful words of Jesus. What he quoted out of Isaiah 61. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, the deliverance of cap- uh, to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Do you fit in any of those categories? Are you blinded by sin? Or are you oppressed by a habit? you Have been hassled by the devil? Do you feel that emptiness that comes from this world? You're trying to please yourself in so many ways and trying to find fulfillment, and you can't. Jesus came for you. To set you free, to give you sight. Now, you could be very much like the people in Nazareth that go, oh, I don't want it. I'll reject it. I don't want to give my life to another. I don't want to have God rule and control my life. The devil's a cool dude. Take a clue. You'll never find love like the love that God has to offer. Yeah, but then I have to come to church and there's hypocrites. And... Now, now, now look one more time at, at the people that Jesus mentions. Poor, broken hearted, captive, blind, oppressed. That's a messy group of people, isn't it? That's us. Thank God that there's a place we can come. Thank God he accepts us the way we are. Thank God he doesn't say, no, clean up your act, dude. Then I'll accept you. Be perfect first. Now just come as you are, confess your sin, and let me cleanse you from your unrighteousness. Father, we want to thank you for the great promises of a great God for a very undeserving group of people such as us. We thank you, Lord. We're more in love with our Savior every time we read about him, just who he was and who he is today. And we're so thankful, Lord that God came in human flesh in the form of your son, Jesus Christ, who is now our great high priest seated at the right hand of you, O Father. He is able to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, to sympathize with our weaknesses so that we can come boldly before your throne and receive help. And Lord, we admit we need your help tonight. We need your help In so many different ways. And you know each one of our hearts right now. Nothing escapes your gaze. And you are able to set those free who are captive. To remove the blindness from those who are blind. To proclaim deliverance, freedom. Lord, I pray that we would not be like the people of Nazareth. That we would not rest in our self-righteousness or our pride. But that we would receive what Jesus has to offer.